0: My name is Brahman Sire, and you're listening to The Drop. The Drop is an investigative, mindful, and creative dive into the future. Each episode, will ask a question or investigate an issue around equality, sustainability, or a better future. Hi, Bronwyn. Hi. So, what's this episode about? Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked. I hope you already know because we've been working on it for a little while now. So we are essentially creating a podcast that bridges creative fields with big issues. Um, quite a few. In this episode alone, we look at ocean plastics, climate change, sustainability in fashion, and women's rights. Yeah, just decided to keep it light for the first episode. Yeah, I know it's a lot, but this episode is largely about how to talk about issues. Basically, we're diving in with this question, how do we engage the unengaged?
1: Yeah, I think, Roman, this is such a great topic to start with the series, because we're learning about how to communicate, and this podcast is a mode of communication. But also, I think it's such a great um, topic, because we as designers, makers and thinkers ourselves are figuring out how to engage the unengaged or get people interested in something. So this area is something that, yeah, we're trying to navigate the whole time.
2: Yeah, that's so true, Bips. And between us, we talk about the complexity of dealing with these issues all the time. And being so complex,
1: is there a right way or a wrong way to communicate them? Yeah, I always think about that. I mean, I am always trying to be positive, and I do wonder when we get into these issues deeper, if me trying to be positive or not wanting to offend people means that actually I do neglect sometimes the seriousness of these issues. Yeah, definitely. So we
2: interviewed three guests in this episode, and the whole positive versus negative communication debate is something that all of them touched on.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because going into making this episode, I'm such a realist, and I kind of feel like you need to get real and sometimes negative. Like in environmentalism, you need to show people the worst case scenario so that they'll pay attention. But then actually with all three of our guests, they kind of changed my mind. They were also positive.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I guess why we wanted to begin um, with this element of communication.
2: Yeah, so the first person we spoke to was Lucy Gilliam, who's an environmental scientist, activist, and co-founder of X-Expedition, all around mega babe. Yeah, love X-Expedition so much. Um, We were really inspired by Lucy's research, which explores the depths of ocean plastics problem, which is an issue that wider audiences are really starting to engage with. But why we really wanted to speak to Lucy is because she is combining environmentalism with feminism through alt-female voyages around the world.
1: Yeah, she's so incredible and inspiring, especially because she shows you don't have to be singular in your activism. She, you you know, you can
0: take on multiple issues. Yeah, and what I find really interesting about Lucy is that she's had these first-hand experiences and then she has to really carefully find a balance between conveying what she's seen and the severity of these situations. I mean, there's a lot of plastic in the ocean to see, but then she also has to make sure that people feel empowered to act.
2: Yeah, definitely. And as you guys know, the plastic problem is something I think about constantly, so I found Lucy's conversation so interesting. All the time, Claire. How often do you think about plastics? (laughs) Oh, oh my God. Every time you go to the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is that the day-to-day has all these other factors, like the products we buy and the supply chains we don't know about. So it's good to look at the business side.
0: Yeah, so for the business side, we thought it would be good to get this corporate perspective from Laura Hunter. Laura is the communications director at Futera. So Futera works with a lot of big brands that we know, like Caring and Nike, where you hear often about their sustainability initiatives. And these are the people, Futera, who are creating the customer-facing messages that aim to drive positive change.
1: Yeah, exactly. You don't really think about people active in sustainability and ethics, ethical issues, considering how to cage their messages to different audiences and therefore reach more people. But I guess, of course, a consultancy that specialises in creative communication and business strategy will.
2: Yeah, definitely. And Laura and Lucy both kept coming back to storytelling, which is super powerful for both of them. And with that in mind, we thought it would be great to capture a really beautiful story about fashion and activism
0: from designer Richard Malone. What I loved about Richard was that he just had no filter, and it was amazing to listen to, but I also think that we need more of that in this industry. I mean, one thing that Laura said about transparency is that brands are really afraid to talk, and Richard is not afraid to talk, <laughs> and that was great.
1: I completely agree, I think you're right, we need that so much more, and the fact that he wasn't scared to talk in such, yeah, public arena was amazing. So I think, yeah, his conversation was incredible, it was so timely, because he was talking about the recent campaign for the repeal against the eighth.
2: Yeah, so for anyone unaware, the Repeal the 8th campaign was for a recent abortion referendum in Ireland, where abortion had been banned since 1983.
1: Yes, and the yes vote won, which is incredible. I mean, it's a major leap for women's rights in Ireland.
0: (laughs) It's a major leap for women's rights, but I think also what's interesting is that Richard, of course, is a man, and too often I think you just hear women on these issues and men feel like it doesn't affect them and they don't speak out. But of course it affects them, it affects everyone, and one thing I heard Richard say was that whether or not it affects you personally, women are half the population, so I love that he took on that issue.
1: Yeah, 100 And then as
0: well, just going back to communication, Richard tells us how fashion acted as his campaign tool on this issue, and then he came up against some really big industry players.
1: Yeah, I think what was so interesting that came up in this episode is the idea that bringing up any of these issues in a more fun or fashion or commercial space is a way to bring it to new, to new audiences, so a way to engage and engaged, and I think in that sense it's really about bringing these things into pop culture. Yeah, and in that on that note, Lucy speaks about Blue Planet, which is
2: ultimately a very English phenomenon, um, but it's definitely had huge effects in this country. Just thinking about the recent attention we've given to plastics in the supermarket and straws in restaurants.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, outside of the issues in this episode, I think
0: pop culture is really taking on equality more and more. I mean... Do you guys think that? I do, yeah. I think if you're going to talk about an English phenomenon, which is Blue Planet, then I'll bring up a Canadian one. <laughs> um, Handmaid's Tale is really interesting, I think, when you talk about women's rights, because it's basically taken this worst-case scenario as a way to get the conversation going, and it is about engaging the unengaged, and especially when it came out, I think it was right after the Trump election, so it basically said, you know, people right now are saying, oh, it's not a great time for women, and then this TV show was this dystopian amplification of that, and it just got a lot of people talking.
2: Yeah, definitely. And speculating into the future to engage the unengaged. Black Mirror is another good example alongside Handmaid's Tale. If you can show people a potentially dystopian future and let them see how current issues led there, it can be really powerful.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. I think you're right. When you see like extreme examples of this, then um, it kind of jolts you a bit out of your reality right now and makes you think, oh, maybe this thing that seems so obviously awful to me or out distant in the future isn't as far away as I think it is.
0: Yeah. So how do we talk so people will listen? As you'll hear through these conversations, there are so many examples of what storytelling is and what storytelling can look like, and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if we've answered the question we set out to, but I also think, does that always matter? I mean, hopefully, by exploring these issues, we've found something that inspires us and something that resonates with lots of people. <laughs>
0: We first spoke to Dr. Lucy Gilliam, an environmental scientist and storyteller. In 2014, Lucy co-founded X-Expedition, a series of all-women sailing voyages that study ocean plastics while raising awareness about oceans and human health. The mission of X-Expedition is making the unseen, seen. In my interview prep, I became fascinated with everything that X-Expedition stands for. After watching three documentaries on the voyages and several lectures on the trips, I found myself mentally planning to apply to their next voyage. Yes, I get terribly seasick, but all of these women seem to make it worth it. Here's Lucy talking about her journey through science and
3: communication. I began my career as a scientist and studying microbes in soil and soil systems. But through my my science, I realised that one of the most important things was to be able to tell stories about the science I was doing. And actually, humans are story creatures, and the way to remember things is through narrative and story. The The story is the way that you glue things together and facts don't generally convince people and context is really important. So the story is how you thread things together and in the environmental movement, I think, um, in the past, there's been far too much focus on the things that are going wrong and the negative and while it's really important to be honest about the problems and the challenges we face it's also really important to be optimistic and to give people a path out of those problems and to give them stories that give them hope and stories that give them agency and stories that that give them choices so I started off in kind of working in a very kind of small, detailed world of studying microbes in soil um, but trying to understand kind of global challenges and global problems like climate change and pollution and realised that one of the things that was really important was the translation of that science into the wider world.
0: Listening to how Lucy and her co-founder Emily met and came up with the concept of X Expedition was really grounding. I think so often in the field of sustainability, it starts with asking questions. But the thing is that sometimes the answers, or even the people looking for those answers, don't exist yet. And then for Lucy and her X Expedition co-founder Emily, they turn those questions into an opportunity.
3: When I met Emily, um, I was I was actually still working as a um, as a science scientist in in government and emily um had been sailing around the world studying plastics and she started to have a lot of questions about the impact that these plastics had on human health and at the time i was working on chemicals and toxics and so we met and then we had lots of conversations and we realized there were lots of things that lots of questions that we both had and we couldn't immediately put our hands on the answers and we felt that it was um would be really useful if we could create a place where we could start to explore some of those questions and so that's something that's also really important is the idea that science is about questions and it's about exploration and it's not necessarily about going out there and hammering some facts and saying this is the way it is, and this is the damage and and this is what's happening, but more saying that okay, so we're observing these things happening and it could be having all of these consequences and there are these links between plastics and toxics and we're seeing these, these types of chemicals and toxics accumulating in the food chain. Um, you know, we're seeing them you know, in, in big mammals like whales and polar bears, but we're also seeing them in food that people are eating and what is the impact that it's having on the entire ecosystem and what is the impact it's having on us. And could we create something that would enable us to go out and answer those questions? So that's kind of like the premise behind X-Expedition. When Lucy talks about her kick-ass
0: team, she's not exaggerating. X-Expedition has hosted scientists, activists, designers, filmmakers, artists, and so many other people from interesting career backgrounds. But what's really
3: fascinating is that this is a team of all women on every single voyage. Well, the women-only thing came about because... Emily and I had sailed um in on lots of different boats and we had never sailed with an all-women team and we thought it would be quite interesting. We thought there might be different dynamics. And also we thought that the the stereotypes of women as scientists and women in the media or women sailors or adventurers were really quite, you know, this is not not very much diversity, and so we thought it would be great if there were more role models out there. And I'd been a STEM ambassador for years, um a whole program that like government program in order to get more scientists into classrooms to pro- provide kids with more alternative role models. So you know that was also behind it. Of could we do something that could explore these questions and also put out some different ways of being a woman that would you know be empowering. So that's where the all women's thing came about and um the other thing that was really important for the first trip um was that we wanted to have a lot of diversity in terms of skills so we really set out to recruit um people that could do lots of different things so having someone on board that knew about behavioral science and behavioral science and having someone on board who knew about like waste science and um and having artists and designers and storytellers and and environmental toxicologists and things so people that we thought might have like interesting perspectives or views on the kind of key questions that we're answering and when it comes to telling stories x expedition
0: highlights the environmental issues we face by pairing them side by side with our own human health the women in these voyages literally acted as guinea pigs for toxic pollution through what's known as biomonitoring
3: yeah Um, So the the biomonitoring in the blood um, was part of a citizen science project called Safe Planet and it was a UN sponsored project that analysed the blood of people all around the world for persistent organic pollutants so these are pollutants that are um, generally regulated under the stockholm convention so these are chemicals that are persistent and bioaccumulate in the environment and um, and, are, and are particularly toxic and so we were really really lucky that the the scientists who had been involved in that un project offered to also analyze our blood and it was yeah that was also a a bit of a surprise you know we found that all of us had a chemical fingerprint of um of of toxics that you know none of us had chosen to be there nor could really think well where where had we been exposed and some of them also had their own stories so uh, for example sue who's the oldest member of our crew had quite high levels of kind of a breakdown product of DDT so DDT is this um, chemical that accumulates in the environment it's um, a pesticide that was the subject of um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in the 60s and it has it was banned it was banned in the in the late 70s and it's not really used very much but her contamination came from her childhood And it was still in her body, and the rest of us really didn't have very much. Even Anne, who who was probably the closest next in age, didn't have very much. And so that was like a real difference um, of generations and to do with regulation.
0: I think Lucy's point here is so critical because it goes to show that when you communicate about something in the way that Rachel Carson did when she wrote Silent Spring, it can actually lead to a change in regulation that makes a big difference today silent spring is thought to be a cornerstone of modern environmentalism having woken up the world to the dangers of chemical pesticides and in many ways leading to the ban on ddt
3: i think it's important to connect it with human health to show that you know what's happening out there in the world that's really far away from us is is actually you know it's part of us you know it's we're part of this living breathing ecosystem and what we do does impact like the other side of the world and, and vice versa. You know, it's, it is a bit of a wake-up moment that we are part of our environment. What we do comes back to us.
0: Lucy mentioned a lot of wake-up moments during our conversation. Even as an environmental scientist, she was shocked at the amount of plastic
3: they found on their very first voyage doing the plastic side of things on the ocean was actually quite new when I met Emily so it it, for me the first expedition was the first time going out and trawling and looking for plastics and then the first trawls we did we actually found quite a lot so we were like maybe 200 nautical miles um, from Lanzarote after a couple of days sailing we started doing our first trawls and we actually found more plastic fragments in then biota so like little organisms plankton floating on the on the surface we counted how many we had of them and we counted how many plastic fragments we had and we had more plastic fragments than we had plankton and we were like wow and i think for everybody on board probably except for emily because she's seen it all before and we were all looking at this going oh my god and we like and it's all like really small bits and then we're we're like looking at these little bits of plastic film and like we're looking under the microscope and we're going yeah A fish really isn't going to know that that's not food. And I think that was the moment when we kind of all looked around and went, this is a global problem. So when we talk about how we actually talk about issues around sustainability, I think ocean plastics is a great way to dive in. Um, Plastics campaigning is sort of, it's almost like a bit of a gateway drug for environmentalism because it's actually so obvious. Um, It's a lot easier to campaign on plastics i think than it is to campaign on climate change you know there's actually similar things underneath but actually somehow it's easier to talk about plastics it's more visual plastics is a it's a great environmental um topic to start with it's also like it's gone really like big times plastic pollution is really having its zeitgeist moment and that's absolutely fantastic you know people are talking about it in living rooms you know all across the u k, which is absolutely amazing. you know we've got the Blue Planet effect. David Attenborough has made it very mainstream, but he's been able to draw on a wealth of um of science and research and knowledge. There is the Blue Planet effect, but he wouldn't that message would not have got across if there wasn't all of that science and all of those really great diverse initiatives that enable people to do something about it.
0: One of the things that struck me from Lucy's interview was that the big change moments she described often had nothing to do with gaining a wide audience. It's not about social media or documentaries or the PR. What's really ultimate for X Expedition is the transformation of the
3: women who are on these voyages. So yeah the most important thing really I I feel is gearing people up to be their own storytellers. So the people they... They are participants, they come with us, they sail with us, they have their own perspective from their own background, so they'll be seeing different things, and then they'll be leaving that experience with their own stories, and they can then... You know, go out, do presentations, go to schools, you know, participate in other projects and they can talk from their own experience and from what they've seen. If if it was just the case that we needed to share facts and then, you know, a few people could share those facts and then we'd all act on them, then we, we wouldn't have the environmental problems we do. And the fact is that we need stories from lots of different places. And that's that's one of the one of the things that we try and create is this. Um, network of women that that have their own stories and their own passions and then they go out and share the story of what they've seen about plastics and toxics and 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 how they would like to, to see the problem solved wherever they're working.
0: I think everything she's saying is so fascinating but in the back of my mind I also keep feeling like we're in this time where as we try and communicate effectively we often communicate effectively to people who already agree with us and start talking in circles or we aren't able to communicate to those people who don't share our opinions. So I asked Lucy, how does X-Expedition avoid becoming an echo chamber?
3: Yeah, there will be a little bit of an element of echo chamber because we're doing something environmental and that will naturally attract a type of person. But I wouldn't say that every not everybody was alike and they weren't all people that were working as environmental scientists. People were coming from different backgrounds. And when we did get, you know, the unique applicants then we were we we would pick them and you know put them in the mix you know because we value that we value the perspective of people wherever they're working society is made up of, of of people in all their diversity we need all these functions doing we need the we need the delivery driver as much as we need the baker as much as we need the scientist you know we we need all these different things to make like a fully functioning society and I I really think that wherever you're working you can have a more environmental perspective and things can improve. The thing is that we all start at different places when it comes to how we're geared towards taking care of the planet.
0: And honestly, there's going to be people who aren't going to listen to us or maybe they'll agree, but they won't change their behavior. Even in myself, I see that all the time. I can preach about ocean plastics, maybe less than Lucy, but still. And then I can go and forget my coffee cup or forget a plastic bag at the store. It just happens.
3: There will be times when you'll be confronted with people that they just won't, they, they won't believe the story that you're telling and they might have all sorts of reasons, all sorts of... Theories about why things can't change or why it's somebody else's problem or, or why it's not happening. I think it's really important not to focus too much on that. Um, it's it's important to connect with people that are interested or to think about what it is what is the connection between the thing that you care about and their lives. And I think generally um, there always will be something that you can connect over And sometimes it might be that you need to ask some questions first about what are the things that they love and that they care about and how those things are being impacted by the environmental um, problem that you're trying to solve. One of the overarching things that each
0: of our guests spoke about was positivity in the face of communicating about big issues. what Lucy added to this perspective is the fact that we need to be really honest. We can't just throw in a ton of positivity, we also need to make people realize that these issues are real, their consequences are serious, and we need to place positivity side by side with reality.
3: It's really important to have the positive narratives and to have the positivity and the optimism that things can change. But nonetheless it is really important to be honest about the negative impacts. And where the harm is being done. And it's important to join those up. You can't just keep bashing away with a negative message. Because otherwise I think that leaves people cold and going. Oh my god it's just so depressing. And I don't know what to do. And I'm confused. If you can be honest about the problem. And you can also have some questions. And you can have some ideas about what you can do to change it. You know it's, it's important to have both. But I think on balance, we need to we need to make sure that we've also got we've always got something optimistic and positive to share with people.
0: As Lucy summarized her thoughts on how we can make change and communicate, she so beautifully summarized not only what we can do, but also what we at the drop are all about.
3: I think it's stories and communities and creating inspirational ways to change. Uh, I think it's like connecting with each other and saying, like, we care about these things and we want to do something about it. We can't act on our own, like, if we act on our own, we can only influence a very small part of the world, but if we if we act together as a community, that's how we can, like, manifest much bigger change, you know? We can, we can all be the little drops in the ocean, but then we can kind of make a wave together, so I think it's combining all of those things.
0: Lucy really drove home her message about storytelling to communicate science and the nitty-gritty issues of environmentalism. But the truth is that a lot of the detriment to the planet is caused by consumption and corporations. I wanted to uncover the corporate side of the sustainability equation. For that, I spoke with Laura Hunter, a creative director and communicator at change agency Futera.
4: So we uh, say at Futera, what we do is combine logic and magic. The sustainability side can be quite complex, necessarily so, mm-hmm. uh, very technical, but how do you take that and make it relevant to people? Because to create change you both need the kind of the foundations of change, but you also need to bring people with you.
0: Creating change is what Futera is all about. But how that change translates into the brands they work with is pretty complicated. If you're not familiar with Futera's client list, it includes brands that are vocal on their sustainability strategies like Caring, H&M, and Nike others i was more surprised to see on their client list like pwc and ubs investment bank
4: we don't necessarily just communicate sustainability initiatives at all what we do is help our clients solve problems mm-hmm. they can come to us and say we don't want to carry on in this way how do we check how do we kind of set our business up for the future yeah uh, and uh, we would help our clients kind of define what it is that they want to do what's the best kind of positive change that they could make as a company, and then we'll help them figure out how to get there.
0: I think sustainability in fashion, especially from the industry side, is ultimately a paradox because on the one hand, when a company goes out there and says what they're doing and shares it with the world, they're gonna take some criticism. But on the other hand, we need to criticize them because we need to ask companies to do better. It's tricky because brands like H&M and Kering that have clear, sustainable strategies still leave much to the imagination. How does H&M reconcile its waste or counteract its sheer size? And how can Caring acknowledge via Gucci that fur is cruel, yet still use the material under Saint Laurent?
4: With transparency, um, you know, I going to talk about fashion because uh, I work a lot in fashion. Um, yeah, it, it can be a fear. It can put, put um, brands into a fear space of why mm-hmm. would we open ourselves up to criticism. But I think, I hope things are changing, you know, uh, fashion revolutions, transparency index, you see the number of brands has gone up. I I think it is a, some brands will be in a fear space still, but I, I think it will just reach a tipping point.
0: So client criticisms aside, I wanted to look at Futera as its own company and dive into how they actually create change. The brand has published an inspired and detailed constitution that outlines its mission. I asked Laura about some of the most interesting phrases.
4: So the constitution kind of is the, the
0: underpinning of Vitara. So one thing that I really found interesting in that constitution is the audiences are who they are, not who we want them to be. Do you feel like when you speak to an audience if it's they are who they are, not who they want them to be, that we ultimately can't change their perspective that they might already have about maybe climate change or environmentalism?
4: So, yeah, audiences <laughs> are who they are, not who we want them to be. Is um, I think it's the fundamentals of communications is actually meeting your audiences where you're at, where they're at, sorry. In sustainability, sustainability is often led by um, people who are Uh, very purposeful, they're really driven, they're into transformation and change Mm -hmm. and they want to change the world. Not everyone feels like that, so it's just about tailoring communications to meet audiences where they're at. So we use a really, really useful uh, kind of uh, audience segmentation tool which was um, developed by uh, Cultural Dynamics, um, and it's called Values Modes. Broadly, you can split people into three kind of groups, which we call it's uh, prospectors, pioneers and settlers. Mm. and pioneers are people who are really into kind of transformation and change and create in uh, changing the world have really high agency and feel that they can do anything um settlers are more they they tend to think that the world was a bit better in the past Mm -hmm. um they're into security and safety and saving um, family and community their world is kind of a bit smaller not that they're small-minded but the world is just um, their community around them their physical community and geography and then you have a bigger segment which is the uh, prospectors and they are kind of really into what's fashionable what's, what gives them status they want fun and esteem
0: listening to laura talk about these three groups of people pioneers settlers and prospectors really made me think maybe it's not about turning every person on the planet into environmentalists or an activist Maybe we just need to understand each person's orientation toward the world they inhabit and show them how they, and in turn we, can do better.
4: These audiences all have different values and they have different needs, so I think what sustainability kind of needs everyone, uh, it can't just be led by a small group of people. Mm -hmm. It really, to create a better world, we need everyone to engage in that discussion and that debate and in making it happen. so, so yeah, that's why we say audiences are who they are, not who we want them to be, because we need to meet people where they're at.
0: This makes sense, and it also explains why even some of the best values don't follow through into point of purchase.
4: Increasingly, we find surveys that say Gen Z and millennials they want to make a difference in the world, or they say they'll choose products that have better environmental kind of credentials, or they want to buy from purposeful brands. But it's what we call the values action gap. So we find mm-hmm. that what people say in surveys and what they go on to do is sometimes yeah. completely different.
0: Nevertheless, Laura aligned with her other guests in that she really affirmed that positivity is the way to go.
4: It kind of runs through everything that we do at Futera and our, and our work with clients in terms of presenting a more optimistic, hopeful vision of mm-hmm. the future. And Futera co-founder Solitaire Townsend, uh, she's just written a book called The Happy Hero, actually, uh, which is all about, you know um, about how you can change your life by changing the world. Optimism, yes, it does run through and and that's because we found that it's more effective. A little while ago, it was before my time at Futera, we um, did a big piece of work on um, in climate change communication. Uh, the team at the time did a big piece of research on all the climate change communication that had been out there. And often uh, we think that threat is the best way to kind of kick people into action. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually we found that it just made people switch off. Uh, it can make the problem feel so big and daunting and complex and that I can't possibly make a difference as an individual. So why bother? So potential action turns into inertia and apathy.
0: Futero was also one of the founders behind the Climate Optimist campaign, which suggests that the only way we'll be able to solve climate change is beginning with the belief that we can.
4: Uh, So going back to that kind of initial thing around climate change communications and like the kind of threat and doom actually makes people uh, switch off. And the insight that lies at the heart of uh, Climate Optimist's campaign is that it's basically self-fulfilling prophecy. So if we say we're doomed, we're probably doomed. Mm. If we say we're going to solve it, we'll probably solve it. It's really about mindset. And if you can shift into a positive mindset that's solution-focused and action-orientated we're more likely to kind of achieve our goals.
0: The sustainability cynic in me is kind of waving a red flag, but then I guess it goes back to what Laura said earlier about meeting audiences where they're at. So maybe cynics like me need facts and solutions and a little bit of fear to remind me why these issues matter. And then optimists need climate optimism.
4: What climate optimist does is it is trying to shift the narrative on climate change um, to one where we focus on the solutions, not just the problems because there are so many amazing things happening you know all the time but it's just not the story that most people see um, and going back to the echo chamber thing lots of people in sustainability see these amazing innovations or part of these their teams creating um, innovations and technologies and they're, they're privy to all of this exciting stuff that's happening but the masses don't have access to that information so really it's about democratizing that
0: since we keep hearing how important it is to storytell, I wanted Laura to put some of her ideas in context with some of the brands that she's worked for.
4: Um, so talking about product, um, actually, um, one of the thing, one of the projects we worked on is a couple of years ago now was um, with Jox, the um, uh, the Italian kind of uh, the manufacturer of shoes and other other uh, kind of apparel. Uh, and we worked with them on how to sell their first sustainable product line. And so they'd done lots of work in kind of reconfiguring their business to make it more sustainable and what the actions they could take. All that work kind of manifested itself in a, a sustainable product line, which was a shoe. They'd managed to kind of cut the amount of components in the shoe by half. Uh, they made it. They designed it for disassembly, so that it was easier to recycle and reuse. Uh, made from more natural materials. And they got this product, and said, "How do we sell it?" Because they weren't necessarily known for being, you know, kind of jaunt into sustainability. Um, so we found a story in in that product is that what they've done is taken really, really considered decisions to reduce and to kind of simplify the design of their shoe. And then we looked at, okay, well, how do you sell that to an audience? And at the time, there was definitely a trend around minimalism and actually reducing all the kind of clutter in your life. Actually, buying products with more uh, with consideration and making really yeah, considered decisions. So, this idea of kind of simplification, um, which we found in the story of the shoe, could also be related to, to a lifestyle trend. Uh, so, we uh, they told the story of the shoe around the art of simplicity.
0: Finally, because she's a writer and communicator, I wanted to ask Laura one of the questions that really drove the whole idea behind this episode. Do you think that words ultimately can change the world?
4: Yeah, I do. Most definitely. When you look at um, speeches that have kind of, you know, when you look at Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, I think being able to articulate something in a powerful way, in in a way that that people, that anyone can relate to. When you can tell a story about something that hasn't happened yet or where you wanna go, I think, yeah, definitely. I think history shows us that the words can do
5: that.
0: Laura and Lucy both really brought home this reality about storytelling as a tool for engagement. After I interviewed them, I was thinking about stories a lot. Then, I heard Irish-born London designer, Richard Malone, tell the story of his involvement in Ireland's Repeal the Eighth campaign. I knew immediately it was a perfect story to show how fashion can act as a vehicle for communication around serious issues. When you hear my conversation with Richard, prepare for some serious background noises. I met Richard at Central Saint Martins on a sunny afternoon, and it seemed like a great idea at the time to record outdoors at a patio table. Spoiler alert, it was not a great idea. But, Richard is well worth the listen. Before we get to the repeal the 8th campaign, we talk sustainable fashion, and who's responsible. Um, I know you also work with a collective in Tamil Nadu in India for natural dyeing and weaving, and then you've also worked with recycled materials. I know you did something where you wove recycled plastic as well. Yeah. But I find that, yeah, you're sort of relatively quiet on that side of it. Is there a reason that you sort of let the fashion story take the forefront?
5: Yeah, because I think... For a long, like sustainable fashion has been around for ages and it hasn't really taken off. Even now it's still very much at the beginning of taking off. And I think that's because people were too concerned with making everything like, everything definitely fed into the same aesthetic and looked like it wasn't desirable to buy. It wasn't modern and I think you have to show first and foremost that something is a desirable forward-thinking contemporary product and then people want to buy it because I think there's nothing more sustainable than making things that nobody wants, and so many sustainable brands do that. Like, yeah. they, they think that you' one of my sustainable clothes, you have to look like you know a 1960s hippie mum or something. you know and it's like not that. It's like, it doesn't have to be smock dresses. and I think the point is that you can do really directional shapes. You can use all of the research to push it into something new because with the people in Tamil Nadu, they're used to doing hemp, they're used to doing linen, they're used to doing silk. It's like me taking my knowledge and combining it with them to make something that's new and that is exciting whether or not it's sustainable. And then the sustainable thing is a bonus thing and that's something that I do for my own conscious but I I'm always very aware that you have to make something exciting first and keep it exciting. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be yeah. sustainable, you know.
0: So do you think then that for designers, they don't need to worry about using that sustainable story as a selling point and maybe they should just, it's the right thing to do and It's then-
5: a buzzword, you know, and I do think it very much is a buzzword and people who, like, there's a lot of greenwashing with sustainability of people, you know, Prada get an award for doing one red green carpet dress and then we're all, like, spending fortune every season developing new textiles and that's not sustainable either, because then you have them doing, you know, a million nylon backpacks and you're like, you know, something has to give, so I think also the people who are getting behind sustainability, like, are celebrities who are doing it for their own ego and not to actually change anything, because those sustainability comes from the ground up, it doesn't come from the top down, you know, you can't just spend all your life buying Balmain and then decide you want it to be a green carpet, you know, challenge winner or whatever, you know, so, yeah. I think, But I also think customers now can read the bullshit, you know, they can look at that and be like, why are you proud of getting a Greek carpet award, you know, be like, yeah. yeah.
0: You can hear it in his words that Richard is not afraid of calling out brands on their bullshit. So it kind of makes sense that he's used his creativity as a platform to get political. On May 25th, Ireland voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which had previously banned all abortions since 1983. The referendum came about after a number of incidents in the past decade, one of which involved a dentist dying from a septic miscarriage after doctors refused to perform an abortion in spite of her condition. Richard has been vocal about this campaign from the start, and he speaks about the cycles of abuse that have created a culture where gender imbalances are the unquestioned norm.
5: I don't know, it's always been in our consciousness growing up that that's something that you it was really looked down upon, and I don't think a lot of people even realise in Ireland it was such a restricted culture that you could, you know, women had different rights in different countries and that, that was completely being taken away from people. And even growing up, you'd experience a lot of like teenage pregnancies and different, like to me, different cycles of abuse on women. And like it, Ireland is a really forward thinking place. And I, I've always kind of thought that. So anytime they brought a referendum, we've usually had a good result and people are really mobile. Because with abortion, I think the no side of that campaign didn't realize that that affects everyone. You know, like, it affects everyone and then it affects their family. And we all know, like, All of us there knew really personal stories, so when we did any canvassing or talking or going around to houses, we'd always be able to share a story and someone else who you were talking to had a story too. So there was a quiet confidence um, in it, and I just think with the women I grew up with, they were always very strong and vocal about these things, so I couldn't not be. And even, like, you notice a different kind of relationship with how people in power speak to women, with how they speak to men, and that always really annoyed me and pissed me off. I've always seen like my mum get really angry with people in control like, at my school or something and just because she had to because she's from a different background so um yeah it's just always been something that's very close to my heart and then when I knew that it was going to happen I was like fucking flights and making sure I was as involved as I could be from here yeah.
0: This past April Richard was invited by designer Gareth Pugh to create an installation in the window of Selfridges on Oxford Street in London. It was part of a campaign called the Anatomy of Luxury, which is an apt title considering that the abortion ban has often meant that those in Ireland born with female anatomy are at a systemic disadvantage. He responded with an installation advocating that women's rights over their bodies shouldn't be a luxury.
5: They asked me to take over a window and I planned this um, whole event. we were going to have female speakers come down and read from the book.
0: The book that Richard's referring to here is titled Repeal the Eighth by Una Malali,
5: Which I thought was really vital reading because a lot of people don't know, like a lot of women would keep those stories quiet, you know, and it's a very personal choice, but to have that information out there I thought was really important. I kind of knew I was wanting to do something around that and then several asked me to go in, so I planned this whole thing around Repeal the Eighth and just raising awareness of it, basically. I wasn't taking aside because I understood before going into it that I wasn't allowed but the actual wording of the vote that we were asked to vote on in the ballot box was about repealing so the word that I used obviously they shut down a lot of it and everyone knows that from seeing it on social media and people sharing it. Um,
0: What he's referring to here is that Selfridges wasn't happy with the display. The women's rights parts were allowed to remain in the window but Richard had to remove the language with the word repeal.
5: But yeah, we got to get the message across, which is women's rights are human rights. And it was called Read, React, Appeal, because I really wanted to draw attention to this book that they had for sale in Selfridges, but for some reason we weren't allowed to do. Um, but we got to continue it and talk about women's rights, human rights, but kind of seemed a bit isolated when it wasn't about repeal, you know.
0: It's so interesting because the more I looked into it, I know Selfridges put out this statement, and one of the things that they said was that Selfridges mandates that they're a politically neutral safe space. But it's so funny because, as you say, they were selling that book and also they're, I mean, they sell lots of things, but they ultimately are a fashion store and I feel like, I don't know, do you think fashion can be politically neutral?
5: I think fashion is very politically safe most, like 90% of the time. And I do think, I've had this conversation before about people trying to be political through fashion because a lot of the times people forget that fashion is not relevant to everyone and it's an elitist thing and we're in an industry that is for rich people and people who are from lower income or like a working-class background like myself, you look at it as an image and you look at it as like a dreamy sort of thing. So I don't know if fashion can authentically be political, but the fact that it was on Oxford Street looking onto a crowd of people, you're getting like everyone, you know, it was a very universal way of reaching people, so that's why I thought it was super important. I mean, their statement was, you know, whatever.
0: Actually their statement was pretty bold. Selfridges said on Tuesday 17th April 2018 Richard Malone was invited to present his personal definition of luxury for which this young designer extended to an unfettered freedom of expression and involved an undisclosed and unauthorized political statement. Selfridges is a politically neutral safe space for everyone and it's regrettable that this platform for a celebrated creative talent was commandeered in this
5: manner. To say they're disappointed I think is insulting but um I'm disappointed in them, so it's fair. You know, I think it's a fair outcome, really. Sure, yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, it definitely got a lot of attention, and I think that's probably yeah. the positive outcome, for yeah. sure. I know you created some outfits that you used in this installation, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like when I looked at them, I, it was definitely like a cross between, like, sort of a y like, handmaid's tale sort of thing like <laughs> that. Was that intentional, or what was the design behind it?
5: It was just things that I... The whole branding for that read, React clear thing was um, it was like red and white, um, or black and white. So it was, we did red and white, and then I think it was just a lot of sculptural shapes that I did. And I wanted to do things that were really easy to move in, and that were also very um, like a part of my identity and what I do, and just make them for someone who can move in and who can like really draw attention to that what, what the whole installation that's going on as a whole. So it was more so about we did some fittings with the dancers and making sure that you know you can move and you can you know. And I like that all of the fabrics in it were made by women who were getting paid properly and it just like felt right to me to make it like how it was, you know?
0: I'm still so inspired by what Richard did when I think about it. I feel like every store window should be dancers and book readings and all these political ideas put together in a creative way so that we could walk through stores and not just think about commodities but actually think about who we are and what we want.
5: So I think the problem with fashion now is that brands are afraid to lead a conversation because they're afraid of their reputation and they're not... Like even with salvages they're afraid of the reputation so they were willing to be on the wrong side of history and that you know so and let them i think if you're not willing to i think our generation is there's such change in fashion now and everyone's like not buying into those mega brands and we can you know really cycle through the shit and actually see like what's authentic
0: going back to these ideas around storytelling and communication Richard is honest about the fact that it's not just about imagery and spectacle and windows. He talks about the yes side going door to door and having conversations that really mattered with the people who voted in this referendum.
5: The yes side were so smart in that where the no side were being sensational and putting images out on the street, the yes side were going to people's houses and speaking to people. And the way things are now with social media and the way people interact and date and everything, it's all linked. The power of going to someone's house and having that conversation, it's so much more powerful. I'm quite a lot more outstanding than looking at an image. And I think, you know, you forget, the No I kind of forgot that there are 170,000 women in Ireland who've had abortion. They're not going to be comfortable looking at a poster that says abortion is murder. You know, and that's their families, that's their extended friend group. So I think they kind of dug their own grave really quickly. And I'm glad to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really did. Yeah, it really sank.
0: So Selfridges ultimately became a fashion entity that, as Richard puts it, stands on the wrong side of history. But some platforms are still willing to tout his message. A week before the referendum, Vogue published an open letter from Richard Malone in their opinion section, urging Irish voters to repeal and shedding light on this issue for Vogue's global audience.
5: So I think it was really brave on their part because they're speaking to a huge, there's a huge base of conservative women that read Vogue, but there's also, they're trying to get younger audience in and these are the things that we're concerned about and I think As I said, it's like a global conversation that we need to be having, and that needs to be a part of it. Like, women's rights are completely fundamental.
0: In the letter, Richard writes Many people on the other side of this debate have discussed how they couldn't imagine themselves in a circumstance that requires an abortion. My counter argument would be simply quite frankly, it isn't your business. This is about choice. It is a particular kind of violence to take away another person's choice. On May 25th, I'll be voting yes for myself, for my young cousins, for the women who have been harmed or died as a result of this amendment. For women around the world who do not have a voice in these elections, for women who absolutely deserve and demand a choice, and for all the brilliant, incredible women who have persevered and fought for this day. The Drop is produced by myself, Bronwyn Sire, as well as Amy Foster Taylor, Pippa Smart, and Claire Weiss. We'd like to thank our three guests from this episode, Dr. Lucy Gilliam, Laura Hunter, and Richard Malone. Our theme music is produced by Troy Hewson.